listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. Hello. Hello. Yes. Yes. Instead of hello, <laughs> yes. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast. Uh, this last week, we had lots of different guests in. We kicked things off with a chat with Amina Ashman and Stephanie Gajar, who uh, are the creators of a play at La Mama called Make Me a Hui. Uh, also, we got to chat about the um, perks of our first jobs mm. that we had when we were teenagers and also got to chat to the director of the um, MIF family gala screening of H is for Happiness. Um, the director's name is John Cheedy. Uh, we also spoke about uh, keeping doctors at bay and uh, just prescribing your own medicine mm. when things go wrong. And uh, we spoke to uh, Nick McKenzie, investigative journalist for The Age, and from Nine uh, Investigation Unit about uh, the scandals and organised crime allegations and the corruption at Crown Casino. Three Triple R. A new production at La Mama Courthouse, Make Me a Hoori, is an exploration of faith and feminism by playwright and performer Amina Ashman, who joins us now with director Stephanie Gajar. Welcome, both of you, to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Make Me a Hoori, can you describe the premise and how the show came about? Okay, um, a lot of different influences, um, but I would say it's an expression of how I kind of um, explore my Islamic cultural upbringing. I was raised as a Muslim um, and kind of um, through like moving from um, Melbourne to Malaysia, understanding what that means for me and the labels that sort of come with that assumption um, and yeah, I wanted to have a platform to kind of explore these interfaith conversations um, and my own relationship to my body in regards to how society, um, you know, um, kind of places, I guess, barriers or limitations on me um, in that aspect. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of things um, that have catalyzed this for me. But I would say... Um, having lost my dad really early on to me moving here, like four weeks in, really uh, instigated this because I think I had this new intimate relationship with death now and um, I started questioning human connection and, you know, the depths of those human interactions and, um, yeah, suddenly I started thinking a lot about life and death and afterlife and and what that means to lose someone and how does that shift your perception of the way you connect with the world. Mm. So it's quite a metaphysical exploration, I think. I wanted to do something that touches on eschatology um, because I've always been um, affected by that as a kid growing up and and it definitely influences how I communicate with people and the relationships I have with them. So I thought setting it in the afterlife was um, fitting. Um, and, yeah, this this play is about how a woman wants to become an Islamic virgin of paradise, um, as depicted through interpretations of transliterations of sacred text um, in, in Islam. And I wanted to use this symbol as a way of interrogating how this idea of an, um, a woman of perfection and, and that sort of thing, how does that affect 
a mortal woman's psyche and her own relationship to beauty and purity and morality. Mm. Um, so it felt like the the right kind of symbolism to use. And um, these huris are normally affiliated to narratives um, with Islamic terrorism. And I was like, this is not that kind of play. I'm not interested in that. Mm. I'm interested in how a woman can affect another woman in a very intimate way. And uh, Stephanie, as a dramaturg and director, what is it about this production that excited you? Well, a friend um, Patrick Lee put put us in touch and when she was sending me the synopsis she was like, this is a story about two women and explores how certain policing and dogma influences their bodies and how they interact in life and I just can't it instantly clicked with me because I also come from a converse conservative society and um it I know physically how that affected me growing up and it just I was just like I need to I need to meet Mina I need to really speak to her and read her script and once I did I'm I just a lot of things were very familiar. Hmm. Just spoke to that integral part in your teenage years as you're growing up, as you're discovering the world, um, what it means moving to a Western country, what it means, how it's changing, how you start perceiving yourself and all of that. So, yeah, our first time we met four hours of that, just talking and, like, really talking just about each other rather than what the script was about. Right, into the deep end. Into the deep end. These are really controversial topics in and of themselves young womanhood womanhood feminism female bodies islam uh all these ideas the afterlife all these ideas are really in and of themselves quite controversial um sticking them all together is a pretty brave (laughs) thing to do in many ways i mean how conscious are you of offending people or were you thinking about that when you were writing this play definitely i think there was a lot of um self-sabotage like on my end in regards to um allowing this play to really come to fruition i was afraid of misrepresenting a community i was afraid of you know um kind of adding more fuel to um islamophobia all those sort of issues were very like i was very conscious of them um and it really delayed the development of this script um and it took me a while to realize that I have the right to tell my story and my perspective and I'm doing it in a way that tries to remove as much um, politics as I can from it. Um, but, you know, people can see what they want and then there, there are a lot of semiotics in the play that, you know, people can relate to and question. Um, yeah, I would have dramaturgical conversations with people and the questions that sort of came up were like, how is this connected to the Muslim community? And suddenly I felt like I had the responsibility or the burden to not misrepresent them. And then I suddenly had to take on labels like being a Muslim playwright and like owning it when it didn't actually 100% align with me. And it didn't, you know, so um, I'm so aware of um, how controversial it was. When I talk to my friends in Malaysia about it, they're like, oh my God, like, please put it on here, but you, we know you can't. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I think these are big, big questions. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm so aware of the political climate that's going on. And if anything, I just want to share my perspective of of my, my connection to that faith I grew up in. Um, and it's not black and white. It really isn't. I'm all about translucency, as Steph may know in the <laughs> script. Um, and, you know, just me in general. Um, 
yeah, I'm interested in the complexity of that, the grey area. And, and yeah, La, La Mama is a great opportunity to fraternise and experience the the audience up close and maybe afterwards. What conversations has the work sparked that you've noticed? Well, the most, um, the closest I, conversation I've had was on Saturday with a close friend of mine who was brought up in an Islamic upbringing. Um, and she just looked at me and said, I don't think I have the words for it. I just feel like it hit, it hit right inside of me and it just moved, kept moving, and the shifts were there. Like, I felt the play more than I analyzed it, mm. even though there are a lot of symbolism and there's a lot of images, but she just allowed those to seep through her and feel them. And then she, she was telling me about she couldn't really find the words to tell Amina because... Everything she thought of was just, oh, it's fabulous, oh, it's this. But then all, all she told her was, I felt very confronted by this play. Oh, wow. Um, and she was close to tears at the end, she, she, which was, to me, she, was, she really got the subtext and the feels and the emotions that lie underneath the text between these two women on stage. Um, and as a performer, um, Amina, do you recognise the audience responding very personally? Making making noises of recognition. Yeah. At some <laughs> yeah, I think in the the bits of humour, it's it's quite clear. Or um, yeah, I think there are some moments where they, they are quite shocked by the revelations that I kind of uh, present. Um, but it's been really interesting. I think night after night, it's a very different energy. Um, what you know, this play is also doing is it's allowing the audience to to judge these characters and like it's said in the you know the courthouse I'm like how apt um it's all about how women sort of perceive themselves and and you know judge their own stance to to purity and and all these kind of things and opening night it was like I knew there were reviewers coming in and automatically I'd felt that judgment and it's funny because the play is all about judging yourself and you can definitely feel that energy um but yeah, it changes night after night. Saturday was a very warm, receptive audience filled with like non-theater goers. You know, I had breathwork practitioners and sound healers and I had, yeah, <laughs> wow. like, um, yeah, spiritual ascension activists and divine feminine embodiment coaches. And I'm like, this is nice. I'm bringing some different energy. I was and wondering where they were all going. <laughs> Saturday night, I had a yeah, I saw a few yeah. out about. That's where they were going. Cool. And it was it was great because the conversations continued and um, like there's a crystal shop near the theater. And when I walked in the next day, right before you know um, uh, our call time, they were like, "Oh, you're the actress. We heard about your play in the crystal shop, and we realized <laughs> your fly is down there too." And oh, and like it was just really cool. It's just been very diverse in in responses. And you've got a Q and A show coming up. Yes, on Wednesday after our 8.30pm show. Okay. Uh, so that's uh, Make Me Hurry. We've been speaking with director Stephanie Gadja and playwright performer Mina Ashman. Uh, it's on at La Mama Courthouse until August 4, and you can go to lamama.com.au for details. Uh, Amina and Stephanie, thank you so much for coming in. Thank, thank you for you having so us. Much. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. My uh, niece um, has just started her first job. Ah, oh. mm. she's all she's all very exciting. She's an she's an umpire, AFL umpire. Really? 
Really? That's a cool job. Excuse me. Oh, it's so great, isn't what? it? Yeah. Sorry, first job mm. is an AFL umpire. Not, yeah. not, not, not at a senior level. No, yeah, just at... Yeah, but yeah. it's... It's Goodness. so cool, isn't it? Yeah. That was my brother's first job. Oh, really? Yeah. Umpiring. Yeah. I think it's just a... She might just do the... 13-year-old kid who got abused by lots of adults. <laughs> yeah, right. I hope that well, times have changed. Yeah, I think it... I think it it may have. Yeah. But, yeah, and I think sometimes she umpires her younger brother's games, so... Oh, controversial. Yeah. I'm going to phone that one in. Mm. Uh, well, to that be, is a very to be cool. umpiring ombudsman. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very cool first job, though. Yeah, I thought it was... It was I was so excited when she told me. I'm like, oh, that's the coolest thing ever. I think it was part of, um, like, one of the subjects at school, uh, or maybe she was doing it after school, like, you know, instead of doing basketball or whatever, there was a group of them doing... Umpiring, learning how to umpire. Ah, yeah, that's rad. Does she play footy? No, but um, you know she loves it, and she. Um, that's so sick. I think yeah. also just like a young woman playing uh, umpiring is. Really I know. Cool. Yeah, isn't it? I was just like, oh, you know. I think she told me at my um at my party, and I was like going around showing her off to her. I'm like, it's my name. She's a, she's an umpire. <laughs> uh, but it just, I was just thinking about um you know my first job that I had. Which was um, and and because oh, I was thinking, you know, there's no perks of being an umpire. Or maybe you get, you know, get to go to the games for free, but they're probably free anyway. But if mm. you know, like when you're younger. But um, one of my first jobs was working at the um, local swimming pool, um, and I got I got the job through. It's a cool job. It was a cool, a cool job. job. Yeah, I really liked it, and it's one of those jobs that I, you know, because I'd go to the pool all the time, like in the summertime, <laughs> yeah. obviously, and be like, oh, geez, I'd love to, you know, it'd be so cool to work here. Like, I, you know, I reckon I could do it. Um, and then my sister was older sister was working for the council in like parks and recreation for the local council, and she set up. She wanted to do a survey, so she got me to, you know, just sit at the desk and count how many people were coming into the pool or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then because I... <laughs> you walk past your old she's there with a clipboard writing about you. Yeah, 14 years old. And a clicker. Yeah. Uh, and then because I was there and I just, um, you know, was nice enough, they, the guy that owned the, the pool, that the ran the pool, I think my sister might have had a word with him as, as well. And, you know, so I got the job that way. Cool. Just for being professional, doing yeah, the right. survey. But getting that job at the pool meant um, free pies at the end of the day. Oh, all the leftovers. Yeah, leftover pies in the warmer. I don't know if that's all right. No, it's delicious. All all the ones that are NQR. And all the chlorine you want. Yeah, all the chlorine. (laughs) And 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 there was like um, a Slurpee machine. Oh, and I, we were allowed to have some of that, but just we weren't allowed to use the cups. Like if we bought our own, you know, if you put a coffee cup under mug, that, yeah, BYO mug, no problem. No problem. That is Fill a good. That is a good perk. Was mm. your first job? No, my first job was actually selling um, papers on the street corner. Oh, that's right. Like. In the 1920s. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and then I, I learned how to get um, tips off people by just pretending that I'd forgotten to give them their change. So they, the paper was 70 cents and they'd give... Oh, man, I feel like this is from the 1920s. <coughs> I, they'd give me a dollar and I'd um, put the dollar in my bum bag and then just stand there. 
and they go and I go oh oh I'm sorry you were you waiting for your change I thought you were giving me a tip and then they'd either go oh yeah yeah no yeah I was giving you a tip and they'd leave it but all the next time they they'd say no you keep the change this ah. time so that's because that's I got paid 15% commission plus tips sneaky clever mm, yeah my first job was no my first job was chemist rounds which I think I've spoken around before about before and it was $5 a chemist round to ride for 2 hours to, around the area to old people's houses carrying a lot of medication which I feel like maybe hmm. you're you underqualified for underqualified <laughs> or slightly yeah, underqualified underpaid <laughs> underpaid underpaid was a big part of that um but the yeah, what are the perks, perks of that job well <laughs> can I tell you I thought what are the perks of this job not many except that when I first started doing it the girl who was doing it before me who was handing the job over to me took me on a round mm. and she she was very wily and and she showed me the perks of the job which included when we went to the local old people's home stopping by the smokers deck and she said just go up and ask all those old people for a cigarette each <laughs> <laughs> oh and i'm really uncomfortable doing that and she goes oh, that's what you've got to do and that's the perks of these jobs so then i had to go and ask all these old people for ciggies and they would give me a ciggy i didn't even smoke then then i, then I started smoking uh anyway wow. don't, don't do that yeah and then when we go to old people's houses sometimes they'd give you a tip but their tip would be elderly people perhaps you know, mm. like you were just saying like it's a different time nice, yeah. it might be five cents yeah but sometimes they'd invite you in and they'd say have a cold drink mm. and so when you were in there you'd you know you'd have a cold drink and a biscuit they were mm. the kind of perks and ciggies. bit of a nice vovo an ice vovo <laughs> and a ciggy that mm. was kind of the perks of that show <laughs> still can't believe you're skimming newspaper profits off the top. That's, like, That's where you start. <laughs> no wonder the industry's closing. <laughs> Print media. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I worked in video shops, so the, the perks are obvious. That's but it was right. more leeching off all my family and friends and their jobs. You oh, know, yes. like my my mother worked in a Manchester store, so I just had you know. It wasn't until later in oh. life till I appreciated a thread count and you know bedding. You know the positives. Yes. For me now, this age, that is a dream yeah, job that exactly. someone could have in my life. Um, but my my, si- my sister <laughs> yes. was doing ads for Just Jeans. She was involved in Just Jeans in the nineties for some reason. What a time to be involved in Just oh, Jeans! Oh my god, the peak of their power. That's right. Did you have another sister at Surf Dive and Skate? <laughs> And uh, and Shane Warne was doing the ads, and he had oh an ad where God. he would throw he would throw an iron off a cliff face. Do you remember this? That yeah, I bought these iron free chinos. <laughs> There's no no item of clothing in my life has required more ironing than these <laughs> damn iron free chinos. But there was another ad where he was playing uh, he was playing cricket at a golf course, and uh, he had a bat in a bunker, and he used my bat. <gasps> and so Your I got that. Yeah, my bat. Because oh it, 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 it looked just so old, and there was no grip on it and it was featureless and and he used it and signed it and so what did you do with the bag wow. you still have it now? oh yeah god you still have of the course chinos? yeah oh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm wearing them as we speak <laughs> wow. oh, as i got older better jobs i worked at a service station and this service station kind of kept all the teenagers in our area alive oh, uh, yeah. because we, we all eventually worked there and there was uh some creative um Oh yeah, What's the, it was a bit like there was just accounting, accounting. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was buy one Mars bar, get one free. Sometimes oh. <laughs> you did your own special. Yeah, yeah. there was a just for two mates. for one. Yeah, for mates, right? Yeah, and the, the word really got out about that. Oh, did it? Yeah, I had a friend. And, and sorry, where's the business now? <laughs> yeah. it does, it's closed. <laughs> 
I had friends that worked at a big department store and one of them worked in lay-by and they told me this one in class. So one of them would go, uh, worked in lay-by, so someone would come in and just hand over a pile of clothes and go, yep, let's just put these on lay-by, please. And she'd go, no problem. And then she'd package them up and put them in a bag and then uh, they'd come back like an hour later and go, oh, yeah, I'm just here to pick up my clothes that I left here. And they, she'd hand over the clothes. Oh, oh. I was like, I can't believe that is next level, isn't it? It was like, uh, like, uh, yeah. That is actually genuinely next level. Yeah. That, Do you know who that is on your I phone? I know it's my old boss. <laughs> Three triple. Director John Sheedy is a winner of multiple Helpman and Sydney Theatre Awards and his work has been staged extensively throughout the country, including productions for Bell Shakespeare, STC and Opera Australia. Now, his first feature film, H is for Happiness, makes its world premiere at MIFF and he joins us now. John, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, thank you. It's nice to be here. Now, the, the film is based on the celebrated young adult novel My Life as an Alphabet. Can you tell us about the film and your involvement with the material? Mm, sure. So, yeah, it's based off the, the book by Barry Johnsberg, and um, it's a beautiful, heartwarming story about a 12-year-old girl who's determined to bring happiness back into her family after they suffer a, a great tragedy Um the loss of her younger sister and uh, of course the family's all gone underground and are in grief and um, she's desperately trying to pull them back together and she does it through a series of quite hilarious uh, stunts which she fails yeah. <laughs> um, uh, in but then towards the end she just pulls off one stunt that just thrills and delights everyone and brings the whole family back together. Mm. The, the cliche is to never work with animals or kids and in your first feature film you've got <laughs> done both. So so can you are you going to dispel that for us? Totally. Or? I love working with the kids yep. and I love working with animals. Look, I, you know, um, I adapted Storm Boy to the stage a couple of years ago and uh, I had three Storm Boys I had to work with. The kids are great. They've got such great imaginations. They, they never say no. Uh, and they just jump in there and be brave and they're incredibly playful. So I, I love working with young people. Animals, sure, love them. You know, <laughs> Someone else is going to clean up after them, Someone aren't they? is going to clean up after them. You, you've got a trainer there. So <laughs> The two um, stars of this movie, the, the two young actors, uh, Daisy Axon and Wesley Patton, I think are, are quite phenomenal. Uh, where did you find them? Yeah, that's half the the task, mm. really. Um, look, uh, Wesley, I'll start with Wesley. Wesley was in my short film, Mrs McCutcheon, uh, and which won at MIFF in 2017, best short film. And so that was the first thing he'd ever done. And um, I actually found him. He was in The Secret River, which was a stage production at the STC, and I was working at the STC, and so I found discovered Wesley there and so mm. it was so great to be able to bring him over onto his first feature film with me you know yeah. so it was really really wonderful and with Daisy we went out and auditioned we saw over 400 young girls for that role across Australia and New Zealand and um, of course we found the right girl in Perth and we were filming in Albany in WA so it was quite extraordinary that yeah. <laughs> we found it just not far from where we were filming. This is kind of might sound like a stupid question but when you're looking for <clears throat> a, an actor like that so you've got the lead character, do you have a, a way you want them to look in yep, your head as totally. well? I absolutely 100% do. Ah. Um, I, 
you know, I have all the visuals in my head, in my mind, and I try and match it up. And uh, Daisy was exactly what I wanted. Uh, but not only that, she's brilliant. She she is Candace Fee, that girl. Yeah. She walked in. She'd read the book multiple times. Candace is one of her favourite characters, was before she even had the audition or knew about the film being made. So she had so much to say about her. And she's the brightest, funniest girl, and I, oh, I, I adore her. She walked she in. Must she must have been so excited. Out of the ballpark. Yeah. <laughs> like, what a dream come true! Know, when right? you, you get uh, to play your favourite character yeah. in your favourite oh, book. Was. She just couldn't believe it. And then when you put the two of them together in mm. in the audition room, they were they were so funny, and um, they just got along instantly. And it's exactly what I had in my mind. So. I was very, very lucky. Can you tell us about, given your experience in theatre and with Opera Australia and Bell Shakespeare, what it's like to uh, the task of maintaining attention of a theatre-going crowd, say from mm. Shakespeare, versus you know a, a young adult film? Well, I guess uh, you know any. Whether it's film or opera or theatre, it, you know, it's storytelling, and it's it's kind of making sure that any story is accessible to a, to an audience and to a broad audience. And as I said, I was the artistic director of Barking Gecko for five years, and so adapted Jasper Jones to the stage, Storm Boy, The Rabbits. Um, so I, I guess I was able to bring that experience across to film, and you know, the thing is you want to make these stories as relatable as possible and accessible as possible for a young audience and a family. So there's got to be moments in there for everyone across every age. Mm. And I think that's what we, what I loved about the script for ages for happiness is that it has something in there for everyone. It's not just a film for young people. Um, it's also a film for adults. Mm. And just looking at assembling the cast back to that, you, I mean, the effort that goes in, you, you, have to, you, have, you say that you write love letters to, to potential... Yeah, I did. Mm. <laughs> Who did you write a love letter to? I wrote so many love letters. Did you? Yep. <clears throat> I wrote a love, uh, love letter to Deb Mailman, and that wasn't hard because I do love her. Yes. And she's amazing. I wrote a love letter to Miriam Margulies. Um, again, not hard because I love her. Um, <laughs> And then... What's their address so I can send sure. my own? I'll, I'll give that to you afterwards. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, and so, and then I wrote a love letter to Dolly Parton. No. Yes. What did it say? I can't say. It'll be a spoiler alert. Yeah. But I'm just going to say I wrote a love letter to Dolly Parton and I got a response. <gasps> wow. Oh, so oh we'll leave God. that there. Oh, that's so exciting. So mm. you're obviously pretty good at writing love letters. <laughs> Oh, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, apparently. Look, my husband might think differently. But he's never received one, but they all got one. <laughs> and um, and what, what was it like uh, shooting in Albany? Oh, um, amazing. You know, this film was set in a small seaside town and um, we did a we knew we were filming over in WA and so we did a recce and we drove all the way around the coast. And it's amazing countryside there, all through Bunbury, Bustleton and Margaret River and... Um, we ended in Albany, and Albany is just perfect because it's so picturesque. Um, it's got these amazing, weird boulders and landscapes, and a sense of old world in the its um, architecture and its buildings. And you know, it was this old whaling town, um, and so it has this this sense of history to it um, and shapes in yeah. the landscape. And so, no matter where you point that camera, you can frame something beautifully. And 
I really wanted to find a place that was had a universal feel to it that you could have picked up and placed anywhere in the world and I felt Albany had that and when you look at the film and you watch the film you can see some really beautiful landscapes and cinematic too. With that in mind, do you you feel like a film like this has an international audience? Totally does. And that was really important to me that it has an international audience. It's global, you know, because the themes are universal. Um, And we're talking about some really tough themes. We're talking about grief here too, Mm. you know. And, um, you know, and so I really wanted this to be completely relatable to a broad global audience and that's why it was important to reflect that in in where we shot it, in the design, um, in the way we approached and told the story as well. I mean, it's it's a happy film. It's a beautiful happy film. Um, it celebrates life. It celebrates flaws. It celebrates, you know, um, diversity. It's all of those things. Yeah. Um, um, sorry, what, what does it mean <laughs> for, for the film to be making its world premiere at MIF? Uh, it's... Really important. I mean, it's so thrilling for me, first of all, to to have um, MIF, you know, support the film. We got the Premier Fund and being a part of, um, you know, being involved in the Accelerator Program in 2017 with my short film, Mrs McCutcheon, um, it all tied in beautifully and it's my hometown in Melbourne, so yeah. I think it's the perfect place for the world premiere. It's on at the Astor Cinema Um which is even better because I used to be an usher there when I was wow. a student. So it's oh, kind of come so full sweet. circle. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That's outstanding. And the film is stunning. H is for Happiness is screening August 11 as part of the MIF Family Gala. Go to miff.com.au for details. And we've been speaking with director John Sheedy. Thanks so much, John. Thank you. Three Triple R. Fever. Um had an injury or some kind of illness that you've just kind of ignored <laughs> to a certain point because right at the moment Katha has a um she has a sore foot um and she thinks that she might have done something when um which was riding her horse she maybe she jumped off it oddly or something but it has been a, quite a few months and um it's getting to the point of you know this is if this after a few months if something still hurts then mm. there's something wrong like just make an appointment with the doctor go and i agree not an issue for me being someone that yeah identifies illnesses long before they've flourished <laughs> sometimes or, before they ever do <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, i'm a, i'm a bit the same if i you know I kind of yeah, we'll kind of deal with it pretty early on. Yes. Um, I did. I, I knew a person once who um, had had a a broken back, and and didn't do anything about it for over a week. Um, and he, <laughs> one of the signs that um, you know, he knew there was a problem was he'd go to the video store and he just he'd only ever hire out the videos on the bottom shelf because <laughs> he oh was just God. bent over the whole time. <laughs> Just couldn't stand up and he'd just be going, oh, yeah, I'll check out this country in Western. <laughs> and then was, you know, eventually went, oh, I should probably go to the doctors and, oh, yeah. Broken yeah. back. Yeah, broken back. It's not back. a small injury. At all, is it? No. I think that was... <laughs> so he saw Brokeback Mountain and go, well, that's it. That's it. Oh, no. So many questions about my life being answered from watching one film. <laughs> Uh, I actually feel like I had the opposite thing happen this week. So I've had, when I was about eight, I it was suspected that I fractured my coccyx. 
Yeah, right. From one of Dad's homemade uh, slippery sides, which was was a a gigantic piece of industrial plastic Mm -hmm. in our paddock with a hose at the top and a brick holding the hose down. Uh, and we slip and slope on that, and as you can imagine, on a hill, on a and, hill, on a oh, paddock, right. yeah. And you launched, and I launched, the uh, and there's no pool. To, there's no pool. Just you, just you, just didn't even land in the dam. Just went, your... no, just straight into the grass. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, after one of those incidences, uh, I had a very sore coccyx, and I went to the doctor when I was eight, and Mum just, and the doctor went, ah, oh, I won't put you through the expensive X-rays and everything. It's likely that you fractured it. Just sit on a cushion for a few months. So I had to go to school with a cushion for oh, a two donut? months. It was in a donut no, cushion. No, just, just, well, just the cushion off our couch at home. <laughs> oh my god! I know. So what, I had to you carry... gaff it around your waist. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to carry it with me, and it was so embarrassing, as you'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. How, what What did people say about that? How were your schoolmates? The, when good, you... uh, the good thing was, it was at that end of schooling where the teachers were a bit more aware about. Uh, okay. teasing and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I think they kind of had the front foot on that. But, yeah, still people will see me and go, what was with that cushion that you yeah. had in year five for two months? So people remember it about me Can't years imagine years later. Can't imagine down well with the rock crew. No. <laughs> <laughs> you did not go down well with the rock crew. I was, I was playing uh, golf with Dad, uh, 18 holes, and uh, when we got home, um, Mum told me that earlier that morning he'd had a cancer removed. <laughs> and he's, Oh, my God, what? are you serious? It didn't come up. Oh, my God. It didn't come up. (laughs) So, yeah, he keeps him close to his chest. I remember there was one time he was in the shed welding or something. He got something in his eye, maybe metal. and Probably, uh, given he was welding. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, instead of of going to the doctor, I found out that he just downed like half a bottle of scotch to get to sleep. Amazing. Oh, my God. But he promised me that he'd go the next day. So are you you a bit like your dad in that respect? Have you ever done anything like that? Yeah, yeah. I I, I really persevere. Right, yeah. Because I was chatting with Cal Wilson last night. He's a friend of yours, also a friend of ours. And she told me a story about a particular time that you self-medicated after an injury. No. What is this? You haven't told me this. I haven't told you this. And I was, you know, and I think it's the perfect example of how delightfully silly you can be sometimes. And it's a perfect example of, you know, who you are. Right. Um, <laughs> so, are you, are you nervous about this? No, no, no. I think. Oh, I'm, do you think you know what she's going to yeah, say? Yeah, but I'm wondering who's going to tell it. Daniel was um, on a lunch break <laughs> during work one day, and was crossing the road, and a car ran over his foot. <laughs> ran over his foot. A whole car. Also, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, exactly. At all. <laughs> like it's this is well, such a is Daniel, Daniel story. story. Isn't Already. it? It's so great. The car ran over his foot. And then what did you do after that? He apologised to the car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, continue, I continued to work, but I, I think I got a six-pack of... Vodka and tonics. Chico <laughs> <laughs> said you just had this plastic bag of vodka tonics under your desk that you would just fish out and drink just to get through the working day. Did you go to the doctors after that or did, was it... I did just... ultimately go, not straight after. Oh, yeah. man, it's so <laughs> bad. Knowing... When the vodka didn't work. Yeah, but just knowing, hearing that story about your dad now, it's like, oh, I wonder where you wonder got, where that, you got from. that from. Oh, scotch is all right for dad. Oh, wow. <laughs> How was your foot? Busted. And busted. And busted. <laughs> <laughs>
three triple R. Nick McKenzie is a seven-time Walkley Award winner and investigative reporter for The Age, Sydney Morning Herald and 60 Minutes. His latest co-reporting with Media Group 9 Investigations on alleged corruption and criminal misconduct at Crown Casino has prompted a new push for a federal corruption watchdog. And to discuss these ongoing revelations and their potential impact, he's on the line with us now. Nick, welcome to Breakfasters. Morning, guys. Uh, now, your reporting of these internal files leaked from Crown have triggered concern about organised crime and Chinese Communist Party influence from high rollers brought to Australia. Can you outline what you see as some of the most prominent allegations? Well, basically what our reporting did was to look under the bonnet of Crown's high roller operation. So probably your listeners would, would not know this, but lots of Crown's gambling revenue comes from Chinese high rollers. We're talking about billions of dollars of turnover every year. To get these high rollers into its casinos, Crown partnered with these junket high roller agents they call junkets. Now, what we exposed was many of Crown's junket partners, its sort of contractual uh, business-type partners, who Crown was paying sometimes tens of millions of dollars to, are allegedly involved in organised crime, uh, significant money laundering allegations around some of them. Some of them are working for the Chinese government influence uh, agents or, or, or branches. So posing a whole range of sort of threats to uh, to Australia and the community. And the obligation being on Crown as a responsible corporate entity to know who it's doing business with and supporting. And it seems like they've drastically failed in doing that. So boiling it all right down, Crown's... Uh, abysmal uh, governance in terms of who it was dealing with has actually probably led to some uh, this corporate entity facilitating wittingly, unwittingly or otherwise uh, some pretty um, odious uh, elements in our community who, who do do damage to our community. The uh, Crown, yes, they took out a full full-page ads accusing Nine Media of running a campaign of deceit. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, we, we actually... Uh, we didn't take their money to run that ad. Um, we did uh, put the ad in our paper and analyse it pretty simply. It was pretty easy, easy to demolish. I, mean, I think it's uh, I think it's one of the worst PR fails I've ever seen, and certainly it'll go down in corporate governance history as what not to do to deal with the scandal. The idea that they were running a campaign is, is pretty laughable, and I think it has been laughed at. Um, every day we've, we've reported new facts, verifiable facts, as we've reported those facts, we've had the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, Australia's most powerful crime-fighting agency, come out in more detail than I've ever seen in my almost 20 years of reporting to say this is what's happening in our casinos, this is what's happening in the high-roller trade in Australia. It's posing a massive organised crime threat. We've seen the Federal Attorney-General refer uh, corruption allegations to the Commonwealth Corruption Watchdog overnight. We've seen Victoria's Gaming Minister... Uh, Marlene Carruz uh, refer these allegations to the gaming regulator and ask in Victoria and ask for an investigation. Everybody is taking them very seriously, except it seems Crown itself. Mm. What, what is it about the corporate structure of Crown that you think lends itself possibly to the flourishing of this sort of culture? I, th- I think what's happened over the years, uh, the, the company has been um, for uh, many years run by a controlling shareholder uh, in James Packer who as the largest shareholder, he's no longer that, but as uh, formerly the largest shareholder, he was an executive chairman, he was a director for, for a period. It was run a, a bit like a private company, albeit it was listed. Um, so it didn't have the sort of governance oversight controls that many listed companies do have. And I, th- I think as well you had sort of established a long-standing executive management or senior management in there that, that, that wasn't refreshed and that, that didn't have the... the uh, 
desire to, to really operate with more accountability, not to say that this, the directors uh, of the company or Packer himself, not to say that he knew what was going on uh, in the high roller operations rooms. The point is they should have known that and they didn't know that. All, all, the, all the senior bods at Crown seemed to have been care, really have cared about for a long time was was the bottom line, the, fi- the financial bottom line. And I think what we've exposed is that management structure has led to these organised crime risks actually being realised in a rather dramatic fashion. So what's the response been, the political response been in Victoria, uh, if at all, so far? Well, it's been extremely disappointing until last night in Victoria. Uh, Daniel Andrews, actually the Herald Sun exposed that Daniel Andrews and his former senior advisor had been doing business with one of these crown junker operators who himself is an international criminal fugitive and Chinese Communist Party agent. I think what we've seen and what that story really brought to light was there's a really strong overlap between uh, the operations of Crown, the lobbying of Crown and uh, governments, both Coalition and Labor, but especially in Victoria, there's a close relationship and there, and there should be in many ways a close relationship between such a large taxpayer in Crown and the government. Uh, it's a large employer. Um, it makes sense, but also those relationships, I think, have offered Crown a level of protection uh, in Victoria for some time. So um, Daniel Andrews himself and, uh, and the government minister, Marlene Carruth, I think were, were playing this down initially last night. Marlene Carruth has finally referred these allegations, which she, she calls serious to the gaming regulator. She's asked for it to do its own investigation to liaise with uh, the state and federal law enforcement. So that's a good thing. The government can't hide from this scandal. I can tell you this, we've really just skim the surface. We've got many more articles to come. We've got much more information that exposes this uh, this problem, this facilitation of organised crime and, and this uh, this ugly behaviour. So it's not going away and uh, it's, it is heartening to see a referral to the gaming regulator, although I think we've got to draw a breath and also pose this question. The gaming regulators in Victoria has been looking at Crown Casino for the last, whatever, 20 odd years. Why has it hit? come up with what we came up with? Much of the information we found was hiding in plain sight. We could, oh, I've said this many times, we used it, our best friend at the age investigative unit, Detective Google, sometimes no more than putting some words into the search engine to find out that Crown's business partners had organised crime links. Why wasn't our gaming regulator doing more to, to look under the bonnet as we did? So does it have the capacity and ability to keep looking and to do this proper inquiry? That's an open question. And I suppose you've burned any chances of being a VVIP down the track? Well, yeah, certainly the VVIP, I'm not so sure. I, I think even the VIP uh, list, um, my name's not going to be on. I, um, luckily, I'm not a fan of, of the pokies either. Yeah. <laughs> well, what is the what, how, what role does uh, sex trafficking play in this scandal? Well, one of the really interesting things we found, one of Crown's high-roller agents, so Crown was, had licensed uh, this guy. Uh, he was operating within the casino. They were paying him and his business large amounts of money in return for him getting high rollers from China into its high roller suite. He, at the same time, ran a brothel, just a very short work walk from Crown Casino. Some very basic due diligence would have led Crown to realise and certainly allowed us to find that this brothel has been implicated in notorious organised crime. So uh, under this man's watch, the brothel's managers have been charged uh, and convicted for serious criminal offences around the way they they ran the brothel. It's been implicated in alleged human trafficking, bringing women out from Asia in what a judge described as exploitative uh, conditions in that brothel. So these are Asian women working 
Uh, long shifts in the most horrible of conditions. This was happening at his brothel. He still owns the brothel. Uh, I've also got to say this. I mean, it, Blind Freddy will tell you that if a brothel's a stone's throw from the casino, uh, this brothel specialises in Asian women. The, the men that this man was bringing into Crown to gamble huge amounts of money are Asian men uh, who some of them no doubt would have wanted to, to have the services uh, at his brothel. So he had a little microcosm there, a little ecosystem where there's gambling and then around the corner there's, uh, there's, there's sex uh, at a brothel implicated in alleged human trafficking. And again, to think that Crown would not or should not have known that its partner was involved in that activity, given that overlap, I think is it's pretty naive to think that someone in Crown hadn't sort of thought, well, maybe this guy, Simon Pan, is, is up to no good and maybe he's sending some of our high rollers around the corner to this uh, brothel that's got all these uh, uh, organised crime associations. Mm. And while we've got you, uh, given that the, the stories seem to stem from leaked internal files, um, can you weigh in on the concerns about, you know, the AFP raids and the idea of whistleblowers and leaking in general? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, investigative journalism and journalism works in... Uh, uh, we're privileged to have our jobs. We sometimes work in a grey area uh, and sometimes that grey area, to tell the public what they need to know, you need to find information that is from inside a company or it might be a, a document that's from a... Uh, from a government department that you're not meant to have, uh, and when you publish that, uh, you can uh, it can be potentially a breach of the law. So we've got to weigh up: you know, do we do that or do we not? Unfortunately, what we've seen in Australia, I think, recently with those federal police raids of the ABC News Limited, when they published their classified documents, is yeah, the police or the authorities really saying, "Hang on, we're going to drop our discretion. We normally don't raid or, or don't." Uh, burst down journalists' doors because we understand we respect what journalists do. It's important and it informs the public. It's part of a democracy. Uh, in this, in the, in the recent cases, I think we've seen the police really enforcing the black letter of the law and using their great powers to to do these raids. And that, that effect of that is not just intimidating journalists; it's intimidating whistleblowers. It means that the person who gives me those crown, those crown files will think long and hard about the kick down their door. Now, luckily, I got those files before those raids occurred, uh, but that. It's a really, it has a great chilling effect on journalism, and that's not good for journalism. It's not good for your listeners who, you know, where do they get their information from if not, if not through our media outlets? Okay, well, there's uh, more stories coming down the pipe, you say. And uh, Nick McKenzie, investigative reporter for The Age, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for your time. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.